Welcome to the sermon podcast of Redemption Church. The following sermon is by Pastor Gary Alloway. So this morning, we're starting a new series on the book of Ephesians. It should take us about 10 weeks to get through it. We'll wrap up in time for Palm Sunday and Easter, which I know feels like a long way off, but we'll be here sooner than we think. So question, what do we know about the book of Ephesians? It was written to the Ephesians. Written to the Ephesians. Good answer. Written by Paul. Anything else? An Ephesian is someone from Ephesus. An Ephesian is someone from Ephesus. You're right. Yeah, okay. You can put up that. Uh, yeah. Apparently not much is the answer. And that's all right. That's why we're reading the book. And you can actually just pull up everything there. Hit it three more times. Okay, so Ephesians was written by Paul. Um, there's some debate on that. In the ancient world, there was this practice that, like, if you were a student of Plato, you studied Plato, and you learned Plato, and you knew everything about Plato, and then when you wrote, you would write in the name of Plato. That was, like, a thing that happened in the ancient world. So some people think this was written by a student of Paul or a disciple of Paul, and that he would have, that whoever the disciple was, they would have been so versed in Paul's writing, they just wrote as Paul. But the reality is there's no way to know. These are the sort of things that Phil's commentaries and people write dissertations on. But at the end of the day, it says Paul. So for our purposes, we're going with Paul. <laughs> Who is it written to? The church in Ephesus, kind of. And the reason for that, first of all, Ephesus was a, a large city in the ancient world. Um, it was one of the bigger cities. And there was an early church there that was actually a very influential early church. But one of the things you'll notice as we read this book is there's none of Paul's personal greetings. He doesn't say hi to everyone in the church. He doesn't tell them that, you know, you and so-and-so and so-and-so stop fighting, right? Like all this sort of stuff we see in his other letters. So we have a general book of theology. And in fact, the earliest copies of this book, we, what we find is they don't say to the saints in Ephesus. Um, so probably the, one of the theories is that this was actually a formal letter that Paul wrote a book of general theology that could be passed from church to church. Um, and he makes reference even in one of his, uh, in Corinthians, to a letter that he's sending to the Laodiceans. Some people think this was actually that letter. And then when they got it, they would have passed it on and put to the church in Ephesus. And that's the copy that came down to us. So, to the church in Ephesus, yes, but also to churches. Which means it's a much more general theology rather than, a, you know, Paul litigating the particular disputes going on in the local congregation. Which on some level is great because we don't have to figure out, like, why so-and-so is mad at so-and-so in first century Corinth. On another level can be more challenging because you have to apply big general theology to specific details of our lives, you know. And so, yeah, that's a little of what we get into in the book of Ephesians. So where is the book of Ephesians? If you're not super familiar with the Bible, there you go. A chart from the not-so-boring Bible there. You can tell it's not boring. There's lots of colors on this. <laughs> you can see there's the Old Testament, the first 39 books, then the New Testament. And then when we find Ephesians, we go through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, then Acts, then Paul's letters to churches. And right smack in the middle there, we have the book of Ephesians. 
So I want you to grab one of those Bibles on the end of your pew. It should be somewhere around three quarters of the way through. If you ever get stuck in this middle section, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, you can always remember them because it goes, God eats popcorn. That's serious. <laughs> G-E-P-C there. That's how you remember when you're stuck in that section there. And we're going to read it again because this is actually a pretty complicated passage. I don't know if you guys realized that the first time through. I'm sure everyone kind of glazed over. Uh, so we're going to read it again. So is everybody ready? Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times reached their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will in order that we, who are the first to put our hope in Christ, might be the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked with him in a seal, with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing <coughs> inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Amen. All right, so I assume that now that we've read it twice, you guys got it, right? You understand what's going on there. You can give a quick synopsis of what's going on in Ephesians 1. This is an incredibly complicated passage. In fact, verses 3 to 14 are in many ways one sentence. And one of the challenges is it's not actually a linear thought, right? Paul isn't doing step one, then step two, then step three, then step four. It's not like if I can figure out the first thought, then it goes to the second, then the third, then the fourth. It's actually like this big tangled ball of yarn. And so if you want to understand this passage, in my humble opinion, what you have to do is pull one thread. And it probably doesn't actually even matter which one you do, but I, there's one we're going to start with. We're going to pull one of these threads out, and I think it starts to untangle the rest of the ball around it. And this is where we're going to start, verses 9 and 10. And God made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to put into effect when the times reached their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. Or in my slightly synopsized version, in the fullness of time, God will bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth 
under Christ. In the right time, God will bring all things to completion. Amen? Amen. And this is what Paul's getting at in Ephesians 1, that God has a big plan. Like a really big plan. And we are part of that plan. And our calling is to find ourselves in that plan and to orient our lives towards that plan and that story. And it's this incredibly cosmic story of redemption, right? That one day God will bring everything, all of creation, into unity in Christ. And God will bring everything, even down to the minutest detail of our life, to completion in Christ. And both of those things are true. The stars, the planets, the heavens the brokenness that sits in us. All these things will be brought to completion in Christ. Amen? Amen. So this is the big vision of Ephesians 1. In the fullness of time, God will bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. I'm curious, what's that do to you? Because if I'm honest, when I first sat with that, unity is kind of a weird word, right? And it took me a while to kind of be like, what? How do I connect to that? Why does that matter? Are you actually... Yeah, go ahead. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, for me, I, I think just the... Uh, there's so much... There's so much in all things. Um, and so I tend to just start thinking about, like, just the animal kingdom and just the, like, oh, my gosh, there's, like, so many subspecies. Like, if God could just bring all the birds in unity, that would be huge. Um, so, yeah, just the vastness of that small phrase. Yeah, that's actually why I love that passage in Isaiah, the lion will lie down with the lamb, right? It's like predation stops. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's unfathomable, I would say, you know? What's that? It's unfathomable. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it actually kind of helped me when I pulled out like different translations of this because I think it actually gets a different imagery that goes around it. So this is the NRSV. It says, in the fullness of time, God will gather up all things in Christ, things in heaven and on earth. So God will gather up. You can go to the next one. And this is the plan. Which one is this? The NLT. At the right time, he will bring everything together under the authority of Christ. Everything in heaven and on earth. So he will bring, God will bring everything together under Christ. The message. God set it all out before us in Christ. A long range plan in which everything would be brought together and summed up in him. Everything in deepest heaven. Everything on planet earth. Lastly, if you want to go old school, the KJV. That in the dispensation of the fullness of times, God might gather together in one all things, both which are in heaven and which are on earth. God is bringing to unity. God is gathering up. God is bringing everything together. God is summing up all things. God is gathering all things together in one. One day, it promises everything will be brought to completion. One day, all the loose ends will be tucked in. One day, all the broken things will be restored. One day, all things will be made new in Christ.
God has a really big plan, and it started at the dawn of time, and it runs directly through the story of Israel and directly through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, and somehow directly through you and me. And that's the story we find ourselves in. And we lose track of that story, but there's a huge story going on, and it's going on all around us, and it's going on directly through us. That one day, God will bring all things to completion. A story that affects the highest heights of the universe, the whole depths of the heavens, and you. Every inch of who you are. And neither of those things negates the other. So it means there is a point and there is a purpose and there is a meaning to our lives. And we are in the middle of this this grand salvation story that even the mundane details of our life matter tremendously. That one day, all of it, all of it is going towards something, right? There's this theological word, tell us, the end of something, the purpose of something, where it's all going. One day, it will all be brought to completion in Christ. Even you and me. Amen? Amen. So that's the story we find ourselves in. And God says that we have been chosen and we have been called. And in the NIV, you find that scary word predestined. How many of us, when you hear the word predestined, you go, okay, yeah, okay. A little anxiety going on. Yeah, that's not for bad reasons, right? Whenever we hear this word, we kind of get stuck in like, we, we run it through the lens of like left behind, right? And it's like, Scotty's going to heaven, but Julie's not. And Julie's going to be stuck here with all the sitters. And Scotty's going to go to heaven. And she's going to wake up one morning and Scotty will be gone. And for some reason, Nicolas Cage is there. <laughs> there we go. That's not what's going on here. Yeah, we can just leave Nicholas Cage up for the rest of the time staring at you. One of the things that's helpful when you read this passage is to not read it through the lens of left behind, but to read it through the lens of Abraham. The Old Testament tells the story, right, of God's good creation that somehow gets all mucked up. And rather than leave us in the muck, God calls Abraham. And God never intends this calling to be just for Abraham or to lift Abraham out, right? It's not, a, it's not an evacuation plan. Instead, he tells Abraham that his descendants will be like the stars of the sky. So first of all, he calls Abraham in order for the message to spread, in order to create a people. And he tells Abraham that all people on earth will be blessed through you. So in the Old Testament, God calls a particular person and a particular people, and they're meant to live in the new reality where all things are right before God. But they aren't supposed to like hoard the blessings to themselves. It's not a blessing that's given to them to the exclusion of others. It's a blessing given to them for others. Does that make sense? And that's what Paul is doing here. He's retelling the story of Abraham and saying, we're now part of it. That this calling that God has given to Abraham, this election that Israel had to be this special people, we're now part of that. We are now God's special people, set apart, holy and blameless for God's purposes. We are part of the Israel story now. So again, this this language of calling and election and and predestination is not actually one of like, you're going to get plucked out or you're called and -and so-and-so isn't. It's a sense of God using particular people for his purposes to bless the entire world 
And so again, it's not a sense of like, you're chosen, now wait and sit around and wait till God shows up again in order to evacuate you out. It actually means just the opposite. It means you're on a mission. It means your life has purpose. It means that everything that, of who you are matters to God. It means our lives matter and they have a point. It means that our life together matters. Again, this is never, it's never just singular. It's never God calls you. It's always God calls us. In the same way that God calls the people of Israel, God calls us. And so again, it means that we are in the middle of this tremendous story, right? That there's this tremendous story of all things coming to completion under Jesus, and our lives are smack in the middle of it. The story runs through us, not around us or over us, but directly through us, which is profound. Again, it means that everything we do matters, that our life matters. It has purpose and meaning and direction and fullness and tell us it's going somewhere. In this grand salvation story, God has, for whatever reason, chosen to use us. And so our lives have incredible purpose and meaning in Christ. Amen? Amen. And if you've been over-churched or have some religious baggage, you might hear this language of mission evangelism and just say, pass. Right? Like, no, thank you. I don't want to be, I don't want a lot of religious guilt and obligation, and I don't want to be the weirdo religious person at my work trying to convert everyone. Or maybe you run this through the lens of morality or mission programs, and it's like, "Ah, I just like want to do my job. Might feel like an obligation you're not really up for, but let's go back to this passage for a second and hear what it says about the nature of this calling. If I could keep Nicolas Cage up there, I would, but you know, we got to move on to the next slide. No, you can keep going. Verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Verse 5. In love, he predestined us for the adoption as his children through Jesus Christ, according to the good pleasure of his will. Verse 6. To the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. Verse 7 and 8. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. Verse 9. He made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ. You guys hear that? Like, I, it's easy to miss that in this, like, super thick theology. I couldn't help but think this quote that I love from one of Father Greg's books. He says, uh, from his Leo Rock, God created us because he thought we'd enjoy it. And, like, I'm not the most sentimental guy, right? If, I, if you told me, like, God is lavishing his love on you, like, there's part of it that's like, yeah. Right? <laughs> right? It feels like it's a little too Jesus is my boyfriendy. Um, I kind of feel like I'm in like a shampoo commercial. You know, it's like, ooh, it's a little too like. But that's what it says, right? And we're not even in like Psalms or Song of Solomon. This is Paul, who we think of as like this like hardcore theologian. And here 
he's just saying these phrases like God is lavishing his love on you. In God's good pleasure, he gave this to you. God in his joy. You know, these are symbols of God's great love being poured out freely and generously and overflowingly. These aren't stories of obligation or God being mad or God needing to do salvation math in order to get you right in the back pit or God coming to burn everything up. This is a story of God's love just pouring out and overflowing and overwhelming the world until all of it comes back to him in Christ. So I don't know how to say this and have it not sound lame, but you are in the middle of a tremendous love story. That's the story going on here. That God's love is being poured out first on Israel and then through Christ and then directly onto you and me. And it runs through us and in us and all around us until it brings everything back to God. And it won't stop until all the loose threads are sewn up and the broken things are restored and all things are made new. It's like the best shampoo commercial in the world. God's love is that generous and deep and full. And so how do we respond to a passage like this? You'll notice there's very little to do in this passage. So all I can say is let yourself be loved. Let yourself be loved until it burns away everything in you that is not of God. Let love burn away the resentments. Let love burn away the fear and anxiety. Let love burn away rivalry and strife. Let love burn away everything that is not of Christ until we are left. It's the pure and blameless Lamb of God, the radiant bride of Christ, the beloved Son brought home. Guys, we do not become God's beloved by trying harder. We become God's beloved by allowing ourselves to be loved. Amen? Amen. We have become God's beloved by allowing his overwhelming love to invade all of who we are, to opening ourselves up to letting, to receiving that. And then we're called to let that love spill out. Which is like the best mission strategy in the world, right? That's not a mission strategy that involves 83 new programs or guilt. Let yourself be loved so much that it changes you. And then give it away. Realize the grandness of this story and the bigness of this story. I couldn't help but think of like, you know in Finding Nemo when they get in the jet stream? Like, I couldn't help but think of that, right? It's like this tremendous wave of love is going past you and like, we're all hesitant, but it's like, get in the jet stream, man, and go! Let it take you, be swept up in it. Let it take you where it needs to go. And honestly, your calling is not, not to do anything more than be like, come on, man, let's go. Until it carries you forward, until all things are made complete in Christ. So I don't know how to say that other than as you go about your life this week, Try to take on some of that imagination that there really is just this like tremendous jet stream of love 
going on all around you. It doesn't go on over you, or under you, but through you. And try and find that magic wherever you go, in your job, in your school, wherever you might be. Realize there's this tremendous story going on. And it's not one of guilt or obligation, but one of joy. So that's your calling this week. Let yourself be loved by God. I want to close this week by introducing you to a weird dude. There it is, Leonard Knight. Does anybody know who Leonard Knight is? All right, Leonard Knight was born in 1931 in Burlington, Vermont. He had a 10th grade education. By all worldly standards, his life was a failure. He never held down a steady job. He never made any money. He never had any titles. But at age 35, Jesus found him, and it changed him. And he caught himself up in this tremendous love story. And he wanted everyone to know that God loved them. And he wanted everybody to know so bad that his first plan was to make a homemade hot air balloon that said, God is love, and just fly it over wherever he could. But apparently it's actually pretty hard to make a homemade hot air balloon. (laughs) So it didn't work. And in 1984, he moved to this uh, weird transient artistic community in the California desert called Slab City. It's an abandoned military base, and eventually people just started kind of like taking up residence there. And over the next 30 years, Leonard built what came to be known as Salvation Mountain. There's a picture of it in the back. Kyle, I'll have a couple more pictures of it. Yeah. Oh, you can keep going. Yeah. It's a 28-foot man-made mountain. It says God is love. So one of the things I love about this was this wasn't driven by obligation. There's no cost of admission, no membership, no doctrine statement. Just one person overwhelmed by the love of God who really, really, really wanted everyone to know that God loved them. So there's a clip in the the movie Into the Wild. Has anybody seen the movie Into the Wild? Um, And you're going to see it. They visit Salvation Mountain. And it's a little weird because you're going to see the professional actors, Emil Hirsch and Kristen Stewart, actually interacting with the real-life lettered knight. But this is, from what I can tell, it's an entirely genuine encounter. It's not scripted out. Like, they went and met him. Um, And this is in the middle of the movie. And so, Kyle, I have that And so we're going to watch that clip. And I want you, before we play, don't focus on, like, the ins and outs of how you could build Salvation Mountain. (laughs) Listen to Leonard Knight. And just see him. A lot of tourists come in here and they look at that uh, car door up there. They, they really like it. <laughs> and I found car doors and put them up there and I, and I bolted it all in. Where'd you get the telephone poles? Oh, a lot of people in the valley just love me a lot. Everybody now, I think, in the whole world is just loving me. And, and I want to have the wisdom to love them back. And uh, <laughs> that's about it. So I really get excited. You really believe in love then? Yeah, totally. 
And this is a, a love story that is staggering to everybody in the whole world. That God really loves us a lot. I don't know, does that answer that? Yeah. Good. <laughs> I really love it here. I, I think the freedom of this place is just so beautiful. To me, I, I wouldn't move for $10 million unless I had them. <laughs> so I'm contented here in the desert, and I'm living where I want to live. And uh, I think good gets better. Go out this week and get caught up in this tremendous love story. Let yourself be loved by God and give it away. Amen. To find out more about Redemption Church, visit redemptionbristol.org.